Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In our newsroom, we get a lot of media releases about missing people. It's common for police to put out photos and details of where the person was last seen in hopes of resolving the case. In Calgary alone, there are about 5,000 missing persons reported to police every year. Many are found safe. But have you ever wondered about the people who just want to leave and start fresh somewhere else? Police still have to investigate. Because right now, Lisa was just a missing person, and it's not illegal to be missing. So that's why all our missing persons files stay open until we either find the person alive or we find the remains. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, the mysterious disappearance of a Calgary mother. This is the story of Lisa Mitchell. At 29 years old, Lisa Mitchell had a lot on her plate. Lisa and her common-law husband had two children. In the fall of 2012, she was working as much as possible to help provide for her family, juggling two jobs to try to make ends meet. One of those jobs took her to the small rural community of Longview, Alberta, about an hour's drive south of Calgary. Longview is named for its expansive views to the west, where the foothills meet the first range of the Rocky Mountains. On weekends, Lisa was a waitress at the Twin Cities Hotel and Saloon, a rustic Old West watering hole. It's the place to go for the charm of a small-town Cheers, the kind of place where everyone knows your name. That October, the hotel was preparing for a big Halloween bash. Lisa turned to her mother, Peggy Mitchell, for help with a costume to wear for her shift. She needed a quick costume. She said, I didn't know I had to dress up, Mom. You know, it's a Halloween. I said, it's a Halloween party at the bar. So it was actually one of my mom's outfits. It was a one-piece jumpsuit, uh, like light purple and white sparkles, uh, like a disco thing. (laughs) So she, yeah, she dressed like that. (laughs) Peggy lives in Longview and recommended the part-time job at the saloon to her daughter. I work part-time at the bar because that's how you get to know people in a small town, right? You don't want to go there all the time, but yeah, you can serve them and then go home. (laughs) On October 27, 2012, Lisa proudly posed for a photo as a disco queen before heading to work. The bar was packed. Peggy joined Lisa for the party. The mother and daughter look remarkably alike. They both have deep-set hazel eyes and high cheekbones, and you could easily mistake them for sisters. People would comment, like, every time Lisa and I walked into the bar, they're like, oh my God, you know, they look so much alike. The Halloween party at the saloon was one of the best nights she ever spent with her daughter. 
it was so much fun. Yeah, we were dancing, we were laughing. It made me smile. Yeah, made, it, it was a inside feel good to see you out having fun. We partied after till about three in the morning. We got home and she ended up staying the night here. Despite a late night of partying, they got up early the next morning. We were up by about nine the next morning and we were just hanging out, having coffee and talking. And it was about 11 o'clock or so, we were gonna make a brunch. But a phone call interrupted their plans. Lisa told her mom she was urgently needed at home. She had to get back to the city. They hugged goodbye and said they'd chat soon. Lisa hopped in her truck and headed north to Calgary. Lisa and her common-law husband, Alan, or Al Scheibach, had experienced a few bumps in their relationship, but they were working things out for the sake of their kids. Lisa seemed to think it was okay. Like she said, no, mom, we're doing okay. You know, I don't have to move out here, right? You know, she said she might stay here a night or two if she worked late at the bar or whatever. But other than that, she said, no, I got to work things out. But she was, like I said, trying to get back together and make a united front. And just, they were each trying, I think, to just get along. Peggy was blindsided by what happened next. She just vanished. Two days went by without a single word from Lisa. Peggy started to worry. I left her voicemails, yes. You know, like, hey, where are you? Haven't heard from you. Uh, you know, call me, right? And then I think I sent her a couple texts. Like, haven't heard, you know, what are you doing? Or is everything okay? And so I told myself, she had another shift the following Saturday the 7th. And I said, if I don't hear from her by then, I told my husband, I said, I'm driving into Calgary. Lisa missed that shift. And true to her word, Peggy went to Calgary to try to get some answers. Her shift was for seven o'clock. And I think I left here at quarter to seven because she would have been here. So I drove to, uh, to Al's place and yeah, knocked on the door and yeah, didn't know what to expect. And he opened the door and I asked him where Lisa was. And he said, she took off, she left. And he said that they were having a discussion on the Monday, I think he said. And she had sent him out to go get cigarettes. And when he came back 15 to 20 minutes later, he said she was gone. Peggy couldn't believe her daughter would just take off. She pushed Al for more information. The first thing I noticed is I looked to my right and was there a front hall closet and I saw her, her shoes, her favorite shoes and her jacket. I'm thinking it's October. Um, where would she go without her favorite jacket and shoes. And I said, I, I want to see the rest of the house. And I went through the house and there was a few of her personal things. I didn't uh, see her purse. 
but I saw a lot of her, her jewelry that she would normally have on if she left the house. She had a phoenix necklace, uh, you know, a leather wristband type thing. Uh, there are certain things that she wore when she left the house, and they were still there. But I didn't see her. I didn't see any sign, anything unusual in the house. That's when Alan explained that after she left, Lisa sent him an email. He suggested she might have sent Peggy one as well. Maybe that would lead to some answers. So Peggy went home and checked her email. And there was an email there, you know, just had to get away, you know, we'll be in touch, love ya. Peggy couldn't believe it. She knew Lisa had been under a lot of pressure, but she struggled to accept she would just pick up and leave. They emailed back and forth for a few weeks, but there was never enough information in those messages to alleviate Peggy's worries. She slept with her phone beside her and hoped and prayed Lisa would reach out. Peggy missed her daughter and needed to know she was safe. When that call finally came, Peggy missed it. She was asleep. It was a couple weeks later, on the 16th, like at 2.45 in the morning, I got a voicemail. Uh, She said, I'm okay, sometimes things uh, get out of hand, sometimes they take a while, I can't remember the whole thing, Um, but I'm okay. But the conversation ended where she said, okay, he's home, I gotta go. Who's home? And why do you have to go? So you think, in your mind, is she with someone controlling? Uh, is she chained up in a basement somewhere? You know, you've heard of that, right? And is they, they're, they're controlling him? Like, why, why can't you have a conversation with your mom? Like, who is this person that you're with? But it, it just didn't sound right. Things weren't adding up. That call didn't make sense. And that's when Peggy went to police. The case was given to the Calgary Police Missing Persons Unit to investigate. Lisa had ended all communication, but Peggy still held out hope that her daughter would come back. In the meantime, Alan welcomed Peggy to spend time with her grandkids at their home. I uh, babysat the kids on the odd weekends for him. I spent Christmas with them overnight, Christmas Eve, so I was there in the morning for the kids for Christmas. But without Lisa, she was heartbroken. I was sick. Constant headaches, constant worry. Because your mind just goes a thousand places and you can't turn it off. You can't. I wasn't sleeping. I basically did my job and came home. I gave up on everything. Yeah, we're in the middle of renovating our house right now, but it should have been back back then. But I gave up caring about anything except for my kids. I I didn't care if my house was a mess. I didn't care. I just didn't care. To help you better understand Lisa's disappearance, I'm going to take you back. Lisa was the youngest of Peggy's two children. From a very early age, 
she expressed herself through art. She started drawing when she was four, and she was drawing. I first noticed that she was at the table and she was just drawing wavy lines. And I'm like, okay. And then I looked over five minutes later and it's an ocean with fish and plant life. Like usually when I draw, you know, I'll draw fish and I'll draw, you know, but it's just, yeah. She would go through pencils. Uh, she got heck in grade two for stealing all the erasers from school because she was running out. But she's been sketching since she was four. She was a lot into anime with Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z and those types of drawings. Yeah, and she could draw a motorcycle from memory in explicit detail. Lisa would draw every chance she got. The detail in her artwork is really quite remarkable. That was her de-stress for her whole life, yeah. Yeah, she'd sit in her room or sit somewhere quiet and just draw. As she got older, Peggy encouraged her to pursue art and make a career of it. She had a few offers, but she didn't want anyone to have her originals. And I'm like, it's not the way an artist works, but so her choice. Uh, she actually was this close to registering in the College of Arts. So yeah, but again, didn't, didn't want to go that far. She also loved music. In high school, that is when she met her friends uh, from, they formed a girls singing group and dance, they, you know, make their own videos. They were called Just Cuz, uh, C-U-Z. Their performances included singing and some involved elaborate dance routines to their favorite pop songs. Just Cuz is known by many as a creative hip hop group. Please join me in welcoming just cause. Interestingly, Peggy told me Lisa couldn't sing worth beans, but that didn't stop her. She did it anyway, and people loved her because she had that presence. And she belt out a song. It didn't, and she'd have fun doing it, and that's what people loved. Right? Sometimes it's not about the voice, it's about the delivery. This was back in the, what, 90s, right? Mid-90s. Uh, but they would make videos for, say, me for Mother's Day, or my, my ex-husband for Father's Day, or birthdays. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. They did, they competed in um, dance works where they'd go to different schools and just show off their talent. It was just like a traveling talent show through the schools and everybody from all over Calgary would come and display what they did. After high school, Lisa worked at a lot of grocery stores and coffee shops. And at one point, she worked for a mobile snow cone company she would work selling snow cones at different events. That included concerts, which allowed her to meet some of her favorite bands. Nickelback was playing. So she was done her work, and she was just, you know, working her way to the front like she always does. And she ended up talking to this lady there, and it turned out that it was Chad Croker's mom. 
So I've got a picture of her upstate, you know, on stage at the autograph table, sitting behind the table between Chad and the other guy. <laughs> I've seen that picture. Lisa is beaming. She has the biggest smile on her face. Peggy told me she talked about that moment for years. Not long after that, she met Alan Scheibach. She was at a restaurant somewhere in Northeast Calgary, and he was one of the sous chefs or one of the cooks there. My husband at the time and I didn't, didn't like him. We didn't think uh, he would be good for her because she was so outgoing and so vivacious, and he was more introvert. You can't help who your kids like, right? Lisa fell in love with Alan. But as her mom predicted, their differences soon caused a rift in their relationship. Lisa loved to get dressed up and go out to clubs and dance and have fun. Alan, not so much. Like he would, right from the beginning, he would get upset if, you know, she went out. Because like I said, she just wanted to be out there and have fun. And he would get a little bit of, you know, upset because, like I said, he was more of an introvert. But they worked it out, and Lisa said, you know, this is who I am. Before long, they moved in together. Lisa limited her time at the clubs and instead focused on her art. Things were better for a while. But eventually, the same old issues popped up again. And I got a call from her. She had come home from work and he had moved out on her and taken everything. So at that time I was separated from my husband. So me and my current husband, Jay, said, okay, we're on our way. And we rented a vehicle and went up there. And I asked her at that time, because I know one of the things he had taken was her guitar. And I said, you know, what did he take that meant the most to you? And we'll get that back. And she looked at me and she said, my heart. After five years with Alan, Lisa moved in with her mom. She tried to put her feelings aside and even started dating again. She met a new guy and they went on a trip to Toronto. Uh, during that time she was gone, Al came. Al found where I was and said he was sorry about what happened. He wanted her back. He showed me a an engagement ring he had bought for her. And I said, you know, she's she's moved on. She's in Toronto with so-and-so. So, you know, you've got to talk to her, right? And a couple weeks later when uh, Lisa got back, then, yeah, they got back together. It wasn't long after that, Lisa had a baby boy. The baby wasn't Alan's. But Peggy said from the moment he was born, he embraced the little boy and raised him as his own. And Lisa was over the moon excited to be a mom. Scared, like any new mom, but totally excited. She lived for those kids. She really did. Yeah. A little over two years later, they had a beautiful baby girl and settled into a routine as a family. We would talk, yeah, three to four times a week. And I remember she said the power was out in their house, so they had to barbecue their meals. And uh, one time something else didn't, her oven didn't work, so she made cookies in a frying pan 
for the kids. Like, it was all, always for the kids. Alan worked as a cook, or sometimes as a mechanic. But Peggy said he had trouble keeping jobs. Lisa would take care of the kids during the day and then go to work at night. That busy schedule took a toll on the relationship. So I would be there during the day, and Al would come home from work, and he'd always be, you know, I'm tired. And meanwhile, she's been looking after the kids all day. She's made supper, and all he wants to do is just sit and veg on the couch. He was always too tired to play with the kids, uh, to help her in the kitchen at that time. And yeah, and then you'd see the, the yelling start a little bit because she would just get frustrated because she had to get ready to go to work and she couldn't do everything. The relationship took a turn for the worse and Peggy said Lisa ended up in the hospital. She did not tell me she was in the hospital. I found this out when she got back. She'd still phone, we'd still talk, and she'd say, no, I'm not home this weekend, you know, whatever, make up excuses so I wouldn't know she was in the hospital. It was only after she was released that Lisa told her mother what had happened. That Al had beat her up. We had a good talk. I said, you can't. Like once you're, I, to me, if you're hit once, that's enough. To me, that's a sign. But she didn't want to leave because, and at that time too, there was a few, um, as was already out there, a few domestic calls that the police had attended. Um, But she wanted to be there for the kids. She wouldn't leave for the kids. Peggy worried, but watched as the couple tried to make things work. You know, we talked. She was my, my best friend, my confidant. We'd talk. She wouldn't always go into details. But we'd always talk and I'd make, you know, are you okay? You know, and I'd go down, I'd babysit the kids sometimes and just spend time with her and the kids. Yeah, uh, some evenings her and I, we love Gilmore Girls. So we'd have a, a binge watch of Gilmore Girls to make ourselves feel better or ER. Yeah, that was our girl time. Meanwhile, the fights with Alan became more and more frequent. But I've seen them, you know, share words I mean, they're a little bit more domesticated about it when I was there. Um, but like a, a example, like when he came home, he didn't want to do anything. She's trying to get the kids fed so she can get to work, and he's not doing anything. He's just yelling at her. As a mom, you just must have been like... You have to stand back, right? It's, it's not your fight, but it is, if that makes sense. Peggy admitted there were times the violence went both ways. On one occasion, Lisa hit Alan with a frying pan. She said they were in the kitchen gesturing and, you know, their little bit of pushing and shoving. And she just, yeah, just didn't mean to like kill him with it or anything, but, you know, did give him a whack with the frying pan because she had it in her hand. Yeah. The relationship was in a downward spiral. Lisa moved out. And for a while, Alan was living out of their truck. You can tell them your thoughts and you could try to guide them and support them. Like she knew at any time that we would take her in, right? Even at one time we said, bring the kids out here, live with us. That was in July, 2012. He said, you can live with us, right? Uh, That's when I got her the part-time job at the hotel. Said, it's a start. 
After a decade together, Lisa felt obligated to try to work things out with Alan. So that's what they did. They moved into a new place in southeast Calgary, and they decided to work together to create a stable home environment for the kids. They were each trying, I think, to just get along. Lisa seemed good with the new arrangement. And when Peggy saw her smiling and letting loose at the Halloween party, she thought things were finally going to be okay. I was hoping that they could be better. And because she felt good about herself, um, she was happy. Uh, but at that time too, she wasn't, she, <laughs> she wasn't with Elle when she was happy. Like he didn't make her happy, is what it boiled down to. When Lisa left her mom's house that morning, Peggy thought everything was fine. We hugged each other and she went out the door and I saw she had parked her uh, truck down the street and that's the last I saw her. There were so many unanswered questions. Constable Carl Sudik was working with the Calgary Police Missing Persons Unit when Lisa disappeared. He's a seasoned investigator with more than 13 years' experience with CPS. Lisa was still out there as far as everybody knew. Um, so we had to kind of follow through and see, okay, where could she be? Who could she be talking with? Why would she want to leave her family? About three months after Lisa disappeared, Constable Sudik was assigned as the lead investigator on the case. First thing is, just talk to people who are close to her, find out what her movements are, find out where her banking is, try and track her banking. You know, if we could, try and find phone records. Just get a feel for where she's supposed to be, who she's supposed to be with, and what her lifestyle was like. What stood out to Sudik were the emails from Lisa to both Peggy and Alan. Yeah, it was very confusing. Lisa wasn't sure if she wanted to be there, so she was dating other men at the time, uh, which added another level of complexity, trying to find out who she was dating, because uh, some of these people that she was dating and talking with were not in Calgary, which kind of fit the story of her leaving Calgary and going away with someone else that I believe the emails and the voicemail had said. When someone goes missing, one of the first things police look at is their footprint of life. That includes their physical locations and any digital trail they've left behind. In Lisa's case, police discovered her bank card was used a couple of days after she went missing. They tracked that banking activity to a Calgary strip club. Officers thought it could be the lead they needed to find Lisa, as a lot of businesses have surveillance videos. Maybe the video would tell the story of what had transpired. Unfortunately, that was a dead end. There was no video. Um, there was no recollection that she was there. And the money, I believe there was a withdrawal from a local bank machine inside the actual um, strip club. And there was no camera on that. It appeared Lisa had, in fact, just picked up and left. Uh, that Lisa had gone away with someone. This didn't sit well with Peggy. Her motherly intuition told her something was off. And that voicemail from Lisa troubled her. It just didn't make sense. 
Peggy found it very suspicious, uh, just the context of it and the lack of detail, and also coming from a strange number. Um, it wasn't the fact that this person, or Lisa called when Peggy would be up, uh, Lisa called when Peggy would be in bed sleeping, so that the message would have to be left. And when Peggy uh, listened to the message, she thought it was just strange, on top of the fact that she hadn't heard anything else from Lisa in the previous two weeks and the emails. Investigators needed to explore every possible avenue in the case. Police searched Alan and Lisa's new home. There was a cursory search uh, done of the house. Uh, the officers took a look through just to see if anything looked out of the ordinary, if there had been signs of any sort of violence. Uh, the house, from what I understand from the, their notes, was, was clean, it was organized, except the basement, there was just a bunch of junk piled up, which you look at half the basements in Calgary, looks pretty much the same. Investigators also needed to find out if Alan had any more information that could help them track down Lisa. We interviewed Alan. Uh, just to get him into a story of exactly what happened. I'd asked a senior um, inv a homicide investigator to sit down and have a chat with them. Um, someone who's very, very experienced in interviews and can, can pull the information out that we need to follow through. Because right now, Lisa was just a missing person and it's not illegal to be missing. On January 29th, 2013, Alan was interviewed by Detective Dave Sweet. Hey, Alan. Hi, Dave Sweet. Sweet? Yeah, nice to meet you, sir. You might remember Sweet from previous episodes of Crime Beat, including the story of Mika Jordan. He was the officer who interviewed Marie Magoon. He's confident and kind, and with more than two decades' experience, he has a way of getting into a person's head. Thanks for coming in. Uh, I'm a police officer, obviously. Okay. And... Um, I was asked by uh, Constable Sudik to come in and just talk to you today. And do you know why we're talking? Uh, with regards to Lisa. Right. We're just trying to figure out where Lisa might be, right? Um, she's currently, she's listed as a missing person, and um, we want to make sure that we're doing our due diligence to try and locate her. So, so really, I guess what I'm trying to do is just try and figure out what information you may have because I understand from Constable Sudik that you were the last person that we can confirm actually physically saw Lisa. Yeah. Sweet made it clear Alan was not under arrest. It's important to know that you're not in trouble for anything. I'll say that straight out. You are a witness in relation to this, and the door is here, and you can leave anytime you want. So. Lisa's common law husband opened up to Sweet about their rocky relationship. The littlest thing would become the hugest. Well, give me an example. Uh, forget to lock the door on the way in. Mm -hmm. And now it's an argument, it's a fight. Mm -hmm. And the fights just wouldn't, wouldn't stay small, they wouldn't be little. Okay, what did the fight look like? A lot of yelling, mm -hmm. a lot of screaming, sometimes pushing. But Alan provided a different perspective on what was happening in their home. You touched on some abuse stuff. Can I ask you, were you the abuser or were you the abused? Abused. You were the abused. Okay. Alan Scheibach said he was the victim. He told the detective about the incident with the frying pan. We got into an argument. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know what it was about. Yeah. I can't. Couldn't tell you now. I couldn't tell you then. Yeah. She started. She picked up a frying pan. Not a frying pan, actually. A, a skillet. Yeah. It's, it's important to try and make that difference. It wasn't something small. It was a. Mm-hmm. She took several swings at me. Got hit in the arm a couple times. One kind of glanced off my neck. Mm-hmm. I decided I had to do something. Yeah. I called, tried to call the police. Yeah. She pulled the phone over the wall. She was screaming at me to get out of the house. But he said, since then, they had come to an agreement. They were going to put the past behind them and work together for their kids. It seemed like progress was being made. Mm-hmm. Like we both did want the same thing. Mm-hmm. And now I have to look back at it and go, okay, well, you left, you just up and left. Had their relationship been such an on and off thing for over the 10 years, he looked like he was beat down. He looked like it was one of those things like, okay, she's finally left me, so what do I do? And he was dealing with his own things at the time, the children, job, trying to keep the house. So he had a lot going on as well. Plus, he advised us that he had a lot of anxiety issues. He was going through some mental health stuff. So he just seemed like he'd kind of thrown his hands up in the air and given up on her. It seemed police had hit a dead end. Lisa had vanished without a trace. It was right about that time that a change in the law allowed Constable Sudik access to some of Lisa's private information, which could help them track her down. They needed to find Lisa so they could rule out foul play, and a change in the Missing Persons Act in Alberta opened up some new investigative avenues. With the missing person, like I said, it's not a crime. So we can't demand that phone companies, bank companies, and that sort of stuff provide us information on people for privacy. So the Missing Persons Act came out to allow us to say, okay, we have a missing person now. We need to find this information so we can locate that missing person. It's very focused, it's very narrowed, and it builds on the missing person and goes out from there. So her phone records, her bank records, uh, to find out if her bank was being used, find out who she spoke with, who she was texting to. At that time, you could get the text records. So we were able to see who she spoke with and what she was speaking about. Um, She had spoken to a lot of people, so we had to go through and talk to every one of those persons to see if they've heard from Lisa, if uh, if if she was with, or if they were with Lisa at the time. Because she had an online dating profile at the time, she was dating people, so we were talking to people that she had dated. Um, A couple of those people were, there was minimal information about them, so we didn't know who they were. Uh, There was one guy with a very generic name and the number came back disconnected. So we thought, okay, that's something we can look into because all of a sudden this person's disappeared and Lisa was having a long-term conversation with him. So we had to find him and interview him. Officers continued to investigate, but there was still no sign of Lisa. Months turned into years. Alan needed to move on and build a life without her. He finally landed a full-time job and was able to make a few friends who shared some of his passions for cars and watching hockey. 
he was settling into family life without all the friction and arguments in the home. Alan was working hard to build a happy home for his kids. For Peggy, moving forward wasn't so simple. As Lisa's mother, she needed answers and she never gave up hope. Near the two-year anniversary of Lisa's disappearance, Peggy sat down with me for an interview. A plea for help tonight from the family of a missing Calgary woman. Lisa Mitchell disappeared without a trace. After almost two years, police hope the public can provide new information about the missing mom. Not knowing, not knowing is the worst. Sometimes I go to bed at night and I just wonder if she's warm, comfortable, happy. Mitchell's mother has so many unanswered questions. Questions police have tried to answer, but so far have no good leads. A few weeks after that story aired, police announced a break in the case. On December 6th, 2014, more than two years after Lisa Mitchell disappeared, police found her body. They also made an arrest in the case. Constable Carl Sudik escorted Lisa's common-law husband to arrest processing. Alan Scheibach was charged with second-degree murder and causing an indignity to Lisa's body. Four and a half years after Lisa disappeared, in April of 2017, Scheibach stood trial. Graphic details of the case were revealed in court. It turned out Lisa's body had been hidden in plain sight. Global's Nancy Hickst is at court. And Nancy, what more can you tell us? Court heard that Lisa Mitchell's body was put into a plastic tub and then cemented into the basement that she shared with her common-law husband and her children. Today, Alan Scheibach pleaded not guilty to the second-degree murder of Lisa Mitchell, as well as causing an indignity to a body. Scheibach is accused of strangling her, then hiding her body. She was last seen alive October 29, 2012. Lisa Mitchell had been in their home all along. It took investigators an incredible amount of time and resources to be able to uncover the truth. Remember that phone call to Peggy, the one she got when she was asleep? That call turned out to be key evidence in the case. Investigators did extensive legwork to unravel the mystery. We were able to get the phone number that um, that had called Lisa. Uh, because I asked Peggy for her phone records and it didn't show up uh, because it was a private number. So we were able to work with uh, TELUS to provide us with the actual phone number that called uh, Peggy, sorry, that morning and left the voicemail. The name of the phone came back to an Ale Mitchell. And it was registered with a kind of one of those pay-as-you-go type phone companies. And the mailing address for the account was in Brampton or Vaughan or someplace in Ontario. It was kind of a little shocking um, just because of we're dealing with the Mitchells here. So it's kind of like, okay, where are we going to go with this one? Police requested records for that phone, registered to Ale Mitchell. And we learned that that phone was purchased um, here, but it was registered in Edmonton, and there were five phone calls on it. 
uh, four to Alan Scheibach, and one to Peggy Mitchell. On the surface, that sounds about right. After all, Peggy did receive a call. Except that Alan told us he never heard from Lisa after the emails, which stopped coming on November 4th. Now, something in Alan's story is not making sense. So as far as we can tell, he's lied to us for some reason. We don't know his involvement, we don't know why, but now we have evidence that there's more to Alan than what we're hearing. That took the investigation into an entirely new direction. The fact Alan did not disclose the full truth to Detective Sweet changed everything. Now we have a criminal investigation. Now we have foul play. We were now investigating a murder. Her footprints of life had dried up. We had nowhere to go. She had disappeared. We had checked with the coroner's office. We checked with the unidentified human remains and throughout Alberta. Uh, we had talked to everybody she knew, she used to know, or knew Lisa. Her bank card had stopped being used and she had made no contact with any of her family in three months. So we had satisfied the footprints of life knowing that she is probably dead. And now that Alan were, was caught in a lie, he knows something, we don't know what it is, but now we can say, yes, it's probably a murder and we're gonna investigate that just to find out what truly happened. The shift was we caught someone lying. Someone who said that uh, they're intimate with Lisa, who told us that they hadn't heard from Lisa since those emails. And now we have proof that the phone that Lisa was using to call her mom and leave that message had called Alan four days or the same time same day but four times and on top of that there was geographical information of the phone towers being used and the phone towers for that phone had it near Allen's house you'll recall from previous episodes of crime beat cell phone pings are used by police to help solve a lot of cases crime analysts are able to map out cell communications is how investigators were able to find Talia Marsman in 2016. In this case, the cell ping showed where the caller was when that voicemail was left for Peggy that night. It was down the street from Alan's house. So which means that if Lisa left that message for Peggy, she was either in Alan's house or near Alan's house. The red flags were beginning to add up. Alan was now considered a suspect in Lisa's homicide. Now that it's a criminal, it's a crime, I can use the, the full power of the criminal code to request Alan's phone records, find out where he's been for the last few months, get his bank records, find out what he's been spending his money on, do those sorts of things, and investigate to see how was Alan involved and was he really involved. It turned out Alan had been doing a bit of shopping in the days following Lisa's disappearance. So the banking records provided us the stores he went shopping and the amount he paid. So from that, I was able to go to each of those stores and request a copy of the receipt for that transaction. He went shopping for uh, a large plastic tub, um, cat litter, bleach, gloves, cement, a mixing uh, bucket, and a four by two foot piece of plywood. Those items might seem innocent enough, but to investigators, it painted a very dark picture. Well, he didn't have a cat. 
So the cat litter was kind of a red flag. Um, Peggy had told me that uh, he was deathly allergic to cats. Um, and also there was a, with, a cash withdrawal from Walmart, that same transaction for $40. The cell phone used to contact Peggy was a $39.99 cost for a three month or one month uh, use that was bought at a Walmart. Uh, those are not normal things that you'd purchase. I, I don't purchase or the normal person would purchase. Uh, so I, I went out and actually purchased those items just so I could see exactly what they were. I went and purchased the same SKU and I brought them back to my coworkers and missing persons in homicide and said, what do you guys think? And they all said, that's a burial kit. But police still didn't have the proof they needed to A, find her body, or B, make an arrest. During this time, Alan Scheibach was just going about his normal life. Unbeknownst to him, he was a suspect. And while he was at work, investigators, including Constable Sudik, took another look around his house. The house looked like any normal house. Um, he had pictures of him and the children and Lisa up on the walls. Uh, the computers were mirrored, so I didn't know what was going on with that because I had to be analyzed. And we took a look at the basement, and in the basement was the bucket, the plywood, the bleach, the gloves, and, um, and a large built-out cement construction in the corner of the basement that was covered with boxes. Police were careful not to move anything. They didn't want to tip Shy back off that they were on to him. They still needed more evidence. Investigators needed to come up with a way to get him to confess. And that's when they decided to do an undercover sting, dubbed Operation Aurora. And that was the major crimes uh, investigative technique to befriend Alan and find out what happened. Because as far as we knew, there was two people there that night. There was Alan and there was Lisa. Lisa was missing, only Alan knew. And again, the question was, did she die of natural causes and he panicked? Did he kill her? Is she still missing? It was a Mr. Big sting. I've talked about this tactic before. It's used in a lot of major crimes investigations. You'll remember this is the technique that was used in the Mika Jordan case. A lot of times, they create fake criminal organizations, and the suspects confess to a crime boss, or Mr. Big. But that scenario wouldn't work in this case. Well, that was a troubling part. Alan's not a criminal. He had no criminal past. He had no, he wasn't your biker. He wasn't your gangster. Um, he wasn't even your shoplifter. Police are extremely protective of the strategies used in these sting operations. And every time a Mr. Big investigation goes through and goes to court, all the secrets come out. So they want to keep it as protective as possible for different investigative techniques, different scenarios, different things that they can try. I won't get into the details of it, but they were able to befriend Alan through non-criminal means. So the undercover guys were very creative in finding ways to get out. Um, we worked on arranging babysitters so we could help him come out and, you know, hang out with the guys. There was a lot of time and effort put in to making the undercover operation work. With the Mr. Big, um, things happen. Things happen to provoke a response. 
So certain things were going on where I would go talk to Alan just to see if he would talk with someone, you know, say, we're still investigating this missing person. Have you seen Lisa? Uh, we'd put posters out. So just to show that we're still have an open case. But no matter what police did to try to spur Shyback to talk, he kept his cards close to his chest. So we came up with a scenario where Alan was taken out of town, you know, work with these guys, hang out with them, where we were prepared now to search his house. Alan Shyback went on a trip to Winnipeg, and that's when police turned up the heat. You want to make him feel a lot of pressure. So we wait until um, Alan's with one of our undercover operators, and there's a phone call made where Detective Sweet kind of explains what's happened. Now it's a criminal investigation, and that we're going to be searching his house um, and kind of leave it at that. And that's where Alan, for the first time ever, started talking about what happened because he had a physical reaction in front of the undercover operator. And the undercover operator has no idea what's happened. They have no details of the investigation. They don't know the, ter- uh, the circumstances, the details. All they know is that his wife went missing. They're not privy to the investigation at all. They don't know the details of it. They're just basically actors inserted into someone's life to play a role. Alan was in a vehicle with an undercover officer when Detective Sweet told him his house was being searched. I was told he uh, stopped breathing for a second. Um, he turned white, he started getting clammy, sweaty, and began to hyperventilate and had to have a cigarette. The undercover officer was driving and pulled over. Alan gets out of the truck, uh, the undercover operator gets out of the truck with him, they have a smoke and Alan actually tells us what happened. He says, they're gonna search my house, they're gonna find Lisa. Shyback confessed to the officer. The undercover operator doesn't wanna get too into it, but as any major crime, there's somebody who can help him. So the undercover operator knows a guy who Alan's met before, um, who has talents and abilities, who could possibly help him out in this situation. Shyback wanted to find a way to get some fake passports and take his kids out of the country to avoid prosecution. That was the cue for Shyback to finally see Mr. Big. Shyback went to an apartment where he met with a man he believed could help him evade arrest. That conversation was audio and video recorded. This is audio from those recordings. I just recently got contacted by homicide detective. Shyback tells the officer he needed to get out of town to disappear. I basically have to get and completely lose who I am, who the kids are, and start over. They do search the house. The reality is they are mentioned. Arrest me. Shyback opened up to Mr. Big and told him about the tumultuous relationship. We realized us fighting separately wasn't getting us anywhere. We tried to reconcile. We've been living together again for a few months. And of course, you know, it was good for a little bit. He told the officer the day after the Halloween party in Longview, 
Lisa arrived home and they started arguing. Yeah, she was just in the back room that whole day and then they kind of just go to bed, but tomorrow's another day and then right from the get, I mean, as we kind of argued through that night, eventually just said the hell of it, went to sleep. I just slept on the couch and first thing the next day it was like just right back into it and it just kind of kept going and going and going and getting further and further and it was not coming down. Shyback said the fights continued when they got up the following day. I don't even remember what the real fight was all about. I don't even remember. All I remember is that we were just arguing. It was just back and forth. Yeah, the whole day, and I can't even think of what it was. I don't know what we were saying to each other. I don't know what was getting everything so heated. During that argument, she took the knife. She basically told me she was going to stab me, that she could call the cops right afterwards and tell them it was self-defense. Shyback said they were in the kitchen when things took a turn for the worse. He said Lisa had a chef's knife in her hand. She kind of came towards me with the knife, and I don't know if she... At the time, I think that... I thought she was trying to stab me. I don't know now. I honestly, it, things happened. I wound up trying to hold her back, hold her down. My hands wound up around her neck and I choked. I can remember sitting there trying to let go and not being able to. It felt like things were going on forever. I remember trying to tell myself to let go. Shyback said the story he told police about going to the 7-Eleven for a pack of smokes was partially true. He said after Lisa was dead, he needed to get out of the house and try to clear his head. I mean, if I called anybody, if I called the cops, if I called an ambulance, who was going to believe me? Shyback took some time to figure out his next move. Hiding about and pushing some text messages and emails on from her to the family and stuff, saying she left. I'll be honest, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I was panicking. I, just, I thought maybe if I put salt, or I just keep the smell down. So I got those water softener salt bags. I figured that was the quickest, easiest way to get a large amount of salt. Okay, that didn't really do anything. And then a pipe burst. Shyback needed maintenance workers to come into his place and fix the leak. That's when he decided he had to make Lisa disappear. There was like a old door and there was a box that was down there and I used that to make like a kind of form. I just jumbled over top of the, kept the concrete until it was, was completely covered and everything was packed in around it. I cleaned that place top to bottom with bleach and stuff two or three times afterwards just to be sure. While Shyback was confessing, 
police were busy searching the house. Constable Sudik needed to find her body, and they needed to do it carefully so they didn't destroy evidence. So we consulted with UFC archaeologists. How do we excavate? How do we bring it down? Do we spend days? Do we spend weeks? And then ultimately it came down. We just start bashing away at cement until we find her and then make the plan or go with plan A, B, or C. So we cleaned the basement out. Um, the good folks at Homicide were more than happy to come out and help me uh, break the cement away. And with air ha or chisels and hammers, we were able to break it down to the point we found a large Rubbermaid container in the cement. And we opened it up and there was Lisa's remains in cat litter and salt or soft water salt. I've seen the photos of Shyback's basement and the evidence recovered. It's disturbing to see the lengths he went to to hide her body. She was placed in a plastic tub in the fetal position. She was covered in salt and cat litter. The tub was duct taped shut. In the pictures, you can see how he used a door to create a mold around the plastic tub. He then poured cement over top the container, entombing her. It was cracked. And he used the bleach and cleaner to clean it up from time to time. And he banned the children from going downstairs into the basement. Police found air fresheners all over the house to hide any smell. Shyback tried to cover off every angle that could lead investigators back to him. He confessed details of each step he took to the undercover officer. So I pulled another cell phone, like through Walmart kind of thing, one of those prepaid, uh, you know, got activated to an Edmonton number. Um, and that's where I used to call her mom and leave the voice. And I just played a recording from the computer through the phone, or the speaker, basically. It said, um, yeah, hi, my mom. Sorry. I just got kind of away on me. Oh, he's coming back now. I gotta go. Because I accessed her email accounts and stuff from there, and I created the phone call from the computer. I had some clips of her voice. I patched those together and sent her mom a voicemail with her voice on it to try and help make sure that it seemed like she was gone and trying to get some sort of life back to her. Police enlisted the help of an audio specialist from their tech crimes unit and were able to find the calls he used to splice together the voicemail. He had been tracking Lisa's communications for some time leading up to her disappearance. Yeah, he'd, he'd put stalkerware on her, on her phone. So every time something would happen with her phone, the information would go to an email account or a storage area that he had set up so he can go through and review all that. The story Shyback gave to undercover officers matched the evidence, right down to spending her money at a strip joint. Um, he confessed to doing the purchasing, going to the strip joint to withdraw cash, to have a beer, to make it look like Lisa went to the strip joint after the fact. And this was all from pressure from Peggy calling him saying, have you seen Lisa? Do you know what's going on with Lisa? So he wanted to get her out of his life. So he was sending these notes to Peggy in the hopes that that be enough for Peggy to stop 
hassling him and to stop looking for Lisa. A forensic examination of Scheibach's laptop revealed a history of online searches in the weeks and months after Lisa vanished. In December 2012, he googled, quote, how body decomposition is affected by various things such as salt, lye, concrete, lack of air, and lack of insect activity. Similar searches were done in April and May of 2014, along with other queries on murder legislation in Canada. Between August 2013 and March 2014, there were numerous web searches made for the name Lisa Mitchell. Several included the additional search terms Calgary, missing person, nude, or porn. We were able to get some information through Facebook that helped us. We were able to get some information through other, other areas. Some we couldn't because uh, there was Hotmail, there was Gmail. Uh, Plenty of Fish was very helpful with us in the initial parts of the investigation. The state of decomposition made it difficult for the forensic pathologist to examine Lisa's body, but determined she died as a result of probable manual strangulation. During the trial, Scheibach testified in his own defense and did add some details he didn't reveal to undercover officers, including efforts made to try to clean Lisa up after realizing she would be embarrassed for her body to be seen that way. In every confession he gave, Scheibach maintained he killed Lisa in self-defense. The court found the act of holding his hands around Lisa's throat resulting in her death was not self-defense. However, the judge said she had a reasonable doubt that he intended to kill her. Alan Scheibach was found not guilty of second-degree murder and instead convicted of the lesser offense of manslaughter. He was also convicted of interfering with her remains. At his sentencing hearing, Scheibach said he was deeply sorry for what had happened. He was sentenced to seven years in prison, five years for manslaughter, and two for indignity to Lisa's body. But the prosecution wasn't satisfied with that sentence and filed an appeal. Alberta's top court found the original sentence was unfit. The appeal court pointed to Scheibach's deception. He led Lisa's family to believe she was alive and hold out hope she might return. He maintained that deception until the Mr. Big operation revealed the truth. A written decision stated it was particularly cruel to suggest to the children that their mother had abandoned them, but might return one day, even though he knew that she was entombed in the basement of the house in which they were all living. The Alberta Court of Appeal increased his overall sentence by three years, two for the manslaughter conviction and one additional year for interfering with human remains. In February 2019, just over six years after Lisa's death, Scheibach was granted day parole. Several months later, 
sex toys were found in his room at a halfway house, and he admitted he had paid for sex at a massage parlor on more than one occasion. The parole board found he was deceitful and expressed grave concerns about his behavior. Shyback's day parole was revoked, and he was sent back to prison. That decision was reviewed again in December of 2019, and again, the board felt his risk could not be managed in the community. Shyback would remain in prison. The what-ifs have replayed over and over in Peggy's mind. What if she would have done a more thorough search of Shyback's home that day when she confronted him? What if she had done more snooping around? Any one of the times she visited the home and slept over while caring for her grandkids. But then, okay, if you take that what-if and I would have done that, um, maybe they wouldn't have gotten them as good as they did, yeah. Things happen for a reason sometimes, right? Like one of the officers in the end apologized for saying, you know, didn't truthfully tell me what they were doing because obviously he couldn't. And I had said to him, I said, but you got him. It doesn't matter, it took you two years, you got him. Peggy gets emotional when she talks about the tireless work police put in, including the undercover officers. During the trial, she met with several of those investigators. The Crown came out and said, uh, the detective would like to talk to you if that's okay. And I went into one of those little rooms off and he just grabbed me and hugged me. And he cried, this big guy crying on my shoulder. And he just said, I'm so sorry. And he asked about how the kids were and how they were doing and yeah. But these people, these officers, he was in the second one did the same thing, did the same thing. Was curious about the kids and they wanted to talk to me and just give me a hug and say they're so sorry about what happened. And they were amazing. How much did that? Oh God, yeah, it's right here. Yeah, it just showed me uh, the hard work and the they did their job, right? Like they were into it and yeah, it was just, I was totally impressed and felt for them actually as well. Peggy's life forever changed when her daughter disappeared. Every day she thinks of her. And the day her body was found, Peggy's life took another dramatic turn. She's now raising her two grandkids. Lisa's children. When this all happens, so on December 6th, uh, or December 5th, they find Lisa. A week later, we buried her. And a week after that, so within two weeks, we had kids. Total life changer. At my close to retirement age, I am raising a 10 and a 12 year old. Yeah, but they, they bring life back. It's like, yeah, you know, I can take you swimming today. Or, yeah, I do have 20 minutes to read a story with you. Or we can have a movie night. It just, it's different. It makes you, well, it's made us um, take a second look and really enjoy life. 
and sit back. There was one point that uh, her daughter wanted to hear her voice because she was very young. Uh, I believe she was three when her mom disappeared. And it was a couple years ago. Um, she had said to me, she said, Grandma, I don't remember my mom's voice. It's a hard day. Um, so I said, okay, uh, I've got some VHS tapes. And she's like, we don't want to VHS. <laughs> and I pulled them out uh, because when Lisa was in the dance troupe with just cousin or friends, they made their own videos. We sat here on a Saturday afternoon and we watched all her videos from her dance works and her just cause days with her girlfriends. And in these videos, she was singing, she was dancing, she was talking, and it was just, just amazing. Yeah, we spent a whole afternoon just crying, laughing, and it was really good. It was what she needed. But along with remembering the good times come questions about where their parents are. They know at first we were allowed to tell them that uh, their mom's an angel and their dad is with the police. And that's all we were allowed to say for the first few years. But over the last few years, um, they know that their dad did something to make their mom die. And that is why he's in jail. The older the kids get, the more questions they ask. And Peggy knows it's only a matter of time before they'll want to know exactly what happened to their mother. We do have the hard copies of newspapers and uh, one of the, the pre-trial transcripts. Um, so we have hard copies for them. But when, when do you bring that up? And her daughter just brought some, some stuff up uh, in a few, last few days. Um, we were throwing rocks at the river. Uh, we went down there for a few hours and she's just picking them up and chucking them in. And she says, Grandma, you know, this is, I'm getting rid of some of my anger. I said, why do you have that much anger at your young age? You know, you, you can't carry that. And she goes, I'm glad my dad's in prison for what he did to my mom. And, but she didn't go into detail. And I said, throw more rocks, get it out before we go home. Peggy loves that Lisa's legacy will always live on through her children. How, how much of Lisa do you see in them? Oh my God, every day, every day. She was very outgoing, very extroverted, uh, loved to have fun, but in a good way. Um, she was an awesome mother. She adored those kids, they were the light of her life. And her kids will carry that on. Um, her son remembers a few things, uh, but they, he knows that he, he remembers having fun and that she made him smile and feel good. I mean, he was young, but no, she was just, she had a spirit that keeps living on in them. I recently spent several hours with Peggy at her home in Longview. The kids were there. They look a lot like Lisa and she shines through in their personalities. They're both confident and not afraid to put themselves out there. Peggy told me her granddaughter is a little bit feisty, just like Lisa was. It's clear this has become their home. They're settled and happy.
Thank you for listening and letting me share Lisa's story with you. If this is the first time you've listened to Crime Beat, please go back and take the time to check out the other stories I've shared. These are all such important cases. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast. And if you can, please give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I also want to thank our production assistant, Ryan Robinson, for his work on this episode. If you have a question about Crime Beat or about crime reporting in general, send them my way. You can send me a message on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.